Thank you, Ryan. Welcome to Ironworks Church. I'm going to be talking to you. I want to explain to you the meaning of Christmas this morning. But before I do that, I want to tell you about the 30 seconds of the most, most, 30, most terrifying 30 seconds of my life. Or really, it was more than 30 seconds, maybe 90 seconds. Most terrifying 90 seconds of my life. Uh, we used to live in Florida, uh, Upper Florida. So consequently, we've spent time in Disney World. And we used to go there. It's a beautiful park, this theme park, Disney World. It's very well laid out. And uh, one time we were there, and the, you know, if you know that park, it's divided up into different sections, like animal section, and there's this dinosaur world or land or something. And we were, had come to this uh, beautiful dinosaur uh, playground where the kids could d dig in the sand for fossils and they could play on dinosaur-shaped equipment. It's really nice, you know, and I was there, we were there with our four small children. Uh, my wife, Mary Kay, had gone off with one of the children, and, I, and so I had three of them. And one of them was playing on the bars, one of them was just dead to the world in this very heavy stroller that we had asleep. And another one, my youngest son, Enoch, was toddling around uh, the place and it was very pleasant there. It seemed to be a kind of safe. It was kind of an enclosed area There were these columns that, that kind of set it off and and uh, I was having a great time uh, and then I, I looked over and the, the out, right outside this enclosed playground was an area and there was a footbridge and the footbridge went over to a, a very large plaza from which there were multiple exits. There was a lot of people over there and I'm, I'm giving you the lay of the land because I was over here in the, in the dinosaur playground and I looked over just in time to see that Enoch had gone through these columns and had gone over and was kind of right at the footbridge. And I looked over just in time to see him covered by some people because there's so many people around just to lose sight of him. And I, I, it took me a few seconds to realize that an insolvable problem had descended upon me with dire consequences uh, because he was about to be out of sight and we had just been reading about how predators frequent uh, these theme parks you know because it's an easy place to get an unattended child and just steal a child and the way that they do it, it happens very quickly a predator will approach a child and uh, with his aerosol can spray this aerosol can in his face and knock the child out immediately and as the child goes down, he'll scoop him up, slap a wig on him, and then be and then just walk away. And suddenly you've got what looks like a parent holding a sleeping child against his chest who no longer looks like your child walking away with your child. And you do not want to know the statistics about this. And so, as I said, we had just been reading about this, and so terror just gripped my heart in that moment. As I just looked over, just in time to see Enoch going away, it looked like over this bridge. And I realized, as I said, an insoluble problem here. Because I didn't have time to get that one off the, off the rails, off the bars that they were playing. I didn't have time to go or Enoch would be gone. I didn't really have time to rouse the one that was in the carriage. Because, uh, you know, by that time he would be gone or try to pick, maybe pick her up or, you know, take a carriage. It was, I just had to go or not go. And it was a very 
difficult decision. And in a few seconds, I, I made that very difficult decision. I was going to go. And so I left the children here. There was no one around that I could, you know, comfortably say, would you watch my children, you know, to a stranger. And so I just, I just took off with terror in my heart. I reached the footbridge no sign of Enoch. I went and just ran over the footbridge again into this plaza from which there were many, to which there were many exits, and I wasn't seeing him. And I want you to know that as I think about back on this experience, it always reminds me of Christmas. You know, Christmas with the candy canes and those cookies. And by the way, Last Tuesday night was just fantastic for me. Thank you, Ironworks Church, for that wonderful Christmas Eve service. I mean, it really made Christmas for me. It was so beautiful. And those cookies afterwards, I don't know who made all those cookies, but especially the, one, the little round ones with jelly in the middle, I don't know who made those, but whoever did, you just brought me back to my childhood. Thank you. Because we used to have those kinds of cookies. We were growing up with the jelly. And my parents called them uranium nani shirinis. Don't know why that sticks in my head. Uh, but it says, I don't know what you call but them. Whoever made them, it, it just brought me back. And it was such a beautiful service. It was so well done. It was the most beautiful Christmas Eve service I'd ever been to. So thank you very much, Ironworks Church. But of course, that's what we think of when we think of Christmas, right? We think of all these beautiful things. So how is it that that, re that experience reminds me of Christmas? Well, I'd like to explain to you how, but we have to do it through this passage from the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. So if you would stand, we'll read it. This is the Gospel of Mark, again, the middle of the Gospel we're reading. And it's printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. It's a short passage. Again, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And this is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks. Amen. Please sit down, make yourself comfortable. So we are reading this passage, and with verse 29... We should just be, be aware that this is the end of Act 1 of the Gospel, of this Gospel that's really a two-act uh, presentation. This would be the end of Act 1, just before the curtain calls. And that's why we stopped it here at verse 29. Because this is where the Gospel has been heading for eight chapters. For eight chapters, this question has been coming up again and again. People have been repeatedly asking, who is this? Who is this man? This man who seems to, you know, have control over the creation. He can multiply loaves and fishes. He can, he can have, have power over the storm. And he, he says these amazing things, and he forgives sin. I mean, who is this? Who could this be? 
And that's the question that comes up again and again. And for eight chapters, we've been heading toward the answer to this question, who is it? And now, at last, the answer comes out. And it comes out with verse 29. That's the end, in a sense, of Act 1. And where it comes out is uh, a little bit odd. It's at this place called Caesarea Philippi. And that's a city that was built around 3 B.C. So during the lifetime of these men who are in this passage, these apostles, during the lifetime... Caesarea Philippi was built by Philip, Philip Herod, who, you know, the son of Herod the Great, and he was building this as a kind of monument to Caesar, to the glory of Caesar, but it was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, so it was way out of the way, and you're saying, why is Jesus bringing these, uh, his apostles up there? What was up there? Well, it really wasn't what was up there, it was what wasn't up there, and that was crowds of people. See, Jesus was essentially bringing his disciples away for a retreat to get perspective, to get away from ministry, get away from actually all the crowds that are pressing in upon them in order to get perspective. You know what happens when you go on a retreat, right? Those of you who've gone on a retreat before, you get perspective on things, right? And Jesus wanted them to get perspective on something. And the something that he wanted them to get perspective on was himself. So he brought them up there, them really to talk, brought them up there to talk about this, who he was. And that's why come, we're coming here to the end of Act 1, because the answer now comes forth, that answer we've been waiting for, who he was. Peter, Simon Peter, at last saw something. And what I want to do this morning is take a few minutes to help you understand how difficult it was for Simon Peter to utter that sentence that's in verse 29. For Simon Peter to actually say those words, it was actually hard, a very hard thing to do in his context. And we kind of tend to read the Gospels, you know, and we think, those dumb, dumb apostles, I know who he is, you know, I could figure it out. And we tend to ignore that, you know, that's after couple thousand years of reflection, you know, uh, on what's happened, right? Yeah, we can figure out who he is. But if you were living in it, let me tell you, you would be living in this kind of a world. You'd be living, first of all, in the Roman Empire. If you were one of these men, you would be a, a, essentially a Roman. If, if, even if you weren't a Roman citizen, you were a Roman because this was, this was part of the Roman Empire, as Caesarea Philippi reminded you, this wasn't like Israel calling the shots here. This was Rome. And so the Roman philosophies would be swirling around you. And the, and the kind of Roman philosophy that was prevalent at that time was the, the philosophy of the Epicureans. And in the Epicureans' philosophy, God did not involve himself in human affairs. He might have been up there, you know, there might be God or God's up there or something, but they didn't get involved in, you know, the ordinary human life. Because what you think about Jesus, you know, all comes down to what you think about God, how you think about God. You know, there was this um, little kid actually named Peter also who was visiting his grandmother at one point, and they were making cookies, I think. Um, and he was at the counter, he looks up at his grandmother, he says, you know, Grandma, you're a lot like God. You know how you're like God? The grandmother says, well, no, Peter, you know, how, how am I like God? And he looks at her and he says, you're both really old. 
wasn't quite the answer that she was hoping for. It wasn't quite the answer she was expecting. But it did show you what little Peter, that little boy, was looking at. This is how he saw God. As this, you know, this big old guy in the sky with a beard. That's why he was kind of like grandma. Not, not that she has a beard, but that she was old. You know, he was old. So, you know, that's like God. And that was kind of like the Epicurean's God. And so it would be very difficult for you in this atmosphere to look at anyone and say, God has come in you. This is the Christ. Very difficult for that. That God would act in history, or even if he really could act in history. <clears throat> now, I would just say to you that you are, are related to the apostles, that you're affected by the philosophies that are swirling around you and your culture as well. And the Epicurean philosophy is not too far away. You hear this philosophy... Whenever you hear someone say, you know, God might be out there, but he has more important things to do than to deal with my problems. How many of you ever heard that talking to people? Yeah? Yeah, you've heard that. It's because Epicurean philosophy is around you. That God is up there, but he's, he doesn't deal with actual real life. He doesn't deal with the things that matter in your life. So I would say it's around you too. It affects you too. Now, if you think that you aren't affected by the philosophies around you, you're not thinking. You are very much affected by the thoughts and philosophies around you. That's why it's difficult for you, even those of you who confess Christ, even those of you who believe in Jesus, <clears throat> just look at how difficult, how embarrassing it would be for you to say in public, Jesus is Lord, right? Why, would, why is that so embarrassing for you to say in public? Because these philosophies are affecting you as well. Secondly, if you were one of these men, these apostles, you would be a Jew. And if you were a Jew living in the first century, you had some very definite ideas about what Messiah would do, what the Christ was coming to do. And that would be to restore Israel as the jewel of God on earth. And it had, that had to do with a long history of the Jewish people. If you look back, there was a long history that taught them that God was going to bring the kingdom of God to earth through Israel, through the geopolitical entity of Israel. And that's what the hope was, and that's what the promise was. And, it, and you know, it, it looked like it was about to happen during the reign of King David and King Solomon, it was great things were happening. And so it was going to be, this was, this was great. God was going to establish his kingdom on earth through the people of Israel. And then it all fell apart. And people have been, were wondering ever since, when is God going to bring this back? When is God going to reestablish Israel uh, in order to, to make his kingdom come? And there was a, a whole group of people, a whole movement at that time called the Zealots who, who believed that this was, this was going to be a political solution. It had to be. In fact, Jesus had chosen some people to, who were Zealots to be in his apostolate. He, he specifically chose people who were definitely Zealots and thought this, there needed to be a political solution. So they were your fellow apostles believed this. And so I would like to read to you, just, just to give you an idea of this, a passage from the Psalms of Solomon. OK, 
Okay, the Psalms of Solomon, not a book in the Bible, it's what we call the Apocrypha. It wasn't really written by Solomon. It was written just before the time of Jesus, and it had gotten very popular during this time. And it's very good to read some of these books outside of the Bible, so you get a sense of what the expectation was. And this, t- this tells you very clearly what they were expecting of the Messiah who was going to come, the Christ. So again, let me read to you from Psalm of Solomon's, Psalms of Solomon, uh, chapter 17. It's a prayer about the Messiah. This is what they say. Listen, quote, See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over Israel, your servant in the time which you choose, O God. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to cleanse Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction, to drive out in wisdom and righteousness the sinners from the inheritance, to crash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. It's like calling to mind Isaiah here. To smash all their substance with the iron rod, to destroy the lawless nations with the word of his mouth, to make the nations flee from his presence at his threat, unquote. So in other words, very clearly, essentially, to break the Roman rule off our back. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do and restore Israel to political sovereignty. So it's really about politics. <clears throat> so you understand it'd be very hard for these apostles to look at Jesus Christ and say Messiah, to say Christ to him. Wouldn't it? He hadn't engaged in a single battle. He hadn't spent one day with a crown on his head and he hadn't trounced one Roman. In fact, they, they, had met, they had met a few Romans in their travels and he, he was treating them actually pretty well. It was really annoying. So it was very difficult for them to say Christ to Jesus. And I would say, friends, you are related to the apostles whenever you feel like God is not doing what you think he should be doing in the political situation. You think he, certain things should be happening politically, and how come God is not involved in this? How come God is not moving and doing what you think should be, should be being done politically? And God isn't, isn't, isn't doing things the way you think they should be done. It becomes very hard for you to see God at work in this situation. In other words, it's very hard for you to say, Jesus is Lord, if you are disappointed in what's going on in the political sphere. Not unrelated. Very hard to call Jesus Lord. But thirdly, friends, there's another reason it was very difficult for these folks to actually utter this sentence that was uttered in verse 29. And the third reason was basically just discouragement. God had left history, and if you aren't a zealot, you are probably pretty disillusioned. After 400 years of prophetic silence, you had just given up trying to understand what God was doing in history. It just didn't seem like anything was happening. And you might have been like, more like probably Nathaniel, one of the apostles. And he had just sort of given up. He seemed, seemed like a cynical kind of guy. Given up trying to understand what God was doing. And, uh, you know, you're related to the apostles in, in that way as well. When you get discouraged... You don't see clearly how God is working. It becomes difficult, right, to believe that he is. 
you don't see him moving in the way you think he should be moving, you get discouraged too. And you start to say, where is God? Well, that's what they were at as a whole people. You know, I, and I'm sure that the irony was not lost on Nathaniel. That here they were in the, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, a, a city that was built during their lifetimes. It used to be the tribe of Dan. Dan should be in control of this. But instead, it's a city that's built to say that Caesar was Lord, to glorify Caesar. And here, in the midst of that, the irony is Peter says something about the same thing about Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Very ironic situation. But Jesus seemed to have brought all of this into his apostolate, into his apostles, this society of 12 that he set up. He seemed to bring all these different attitudes and obstacles into the apostles so that the debate would play out among them. When, he's, when he is looking for this revelation to come forth about himself. And so he has them all there and, and he says... What's the buzz, right? Verse 28. This is how Jesus brings this out. First, he finds out what's the culture saying, right? Verse 28. What's, what's happening? What do people think? What's the buzz about me? Why is he doing that? Because he knows how affected we are by what others believe around us. He knows that we are well, that we are, that we are, that we are eminently influenced by what, we, by what the beliefs are that are swirling around us. And if you think that you just believe what you believe, you're like, oh, I just believe what I believe. It doesn't matter what anyone else believes. If you think you're, you're too smart to believe, what it, to be affected by what others believe around you, you're not as smart as you think you are. Because we are, we are repeatedly influenced and shaped by the beliefs that are around us. And Jesus knew that about them. He knows this is how we're made. It's not always bad, but it's always powerful. You grow up in a certain area. I mean, just try it. Just move. You can just try it in the political realm. Move to a different area that is predominantly politically of a different, of a different ilk and watch how your views start to change a little. Watch how they're affected. Or, or more important things. You know, I was at a party recently, and there was a young woman there who I knew had just gone off to college. She was a freshman at college, and she had been raised in a, a Christian home, PCA background, <clears throat> and I know that she had been taught certain um, things that the Bible says about the direction of our spirituality and the importance of gender and relationship, and I knew that about her, but I also kind of kind of predicted what I would what I would get if I talked to her I went over to talk to her and said hey how's college going you know and she was telling me about her freshman year and what was involved and I said and how is I just want to know how the LGBT movement is progressing on campus how's that going and and uh, she she just opened up started telling me about these things she didn't like what certain Christian groups were saying about it and then I knew what was coming I knew there was going to be a statement that actually would really surprise her parents if they had heard, um, but I kind, of, I kind of guessed what was going to come out next, and it did. And she said she was talking about all this, and I was just listening to how she was processing this, and then she said this, 
And you know, I'm not sure what I believe about those issues myself. And I was like, yep, I saw it coming. Doesn't really matter the campus, but the culture is going to affect what you believe, what you take away from it. And, and it works with us too. What we believe, what, what the people around us believe are so important. That's why Jesus starts with there. And that's why what happens in verse 29 is really supernatural. Because of all of these things that worked against anybody being able to look at Jesus and say, Christ, we're so, we're so formidable that this was almost supernatural. And yet one person, one person took that step in history, was able to look at Jesus Christ and say, you know, in, in the face of Roman cynicism, in the face of Jewish discouragement, in the face of all these things, I don't care. I know who you are. You know, it was sort of like, um, this is what I would say, that Peter, Simon Peter here had a Mr. Darcy moment. Mr. Darcy moment. You know, you know when in the Pride, of, Pride and Prejudice where Elizabeth comes to this point, where she suddenly realizes she's been looking at Mr. Darcy the wrong way. That Mr. Darcy was actually somebody completely different than she expected, right? Because there's this great um, scandal that happens in her family because her sister got involved with Mr. Wickham, right? And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden there's this great, there's this great uh, stain on her family. And she watches and Mr. and Mr. Darcy turns around and walks away. And she says to herself, I'll never see him again. I'll never see him again because he would not associate with my family after this scandal, after the shame that's on my family. And she writes him off. And what she didn't realize is that he walked away because he immediately started to work on removing that shame from her family, on removing that scandal, right? And he was doing that all along. When she finally realizes, oh, that's what Mr. Darcy's been doing. He's been trying to take the shame away from my family. It's like... She suddenly sees him in a new light, right? She's suddenly like, I did not know who this man was. I thought he was this, but uh, now I see he's really this. It's a Mr. Darcy moment, right? Well, that's what Simon Peter had. Simon Peter suddenly had this moment where he said, you know, I don't care what public opinion is anymore. You are not John the Baptist returned. You are not Elijah, and I will not be swayed by public opinion anymore. I know who you are. You're the Christ. You ever have a moment like that? You ever have a moment where you thought you saw someone a certain way? You, people had told you about this person, and you had got, built this up, and then all of a sudden you realize you are not looking at him the right way. That's what happened with Peter. This supernatural Mr. Mr. Darcy moment. And you realize when he says that sentence in verse 29, you are the Christ. When he said that, he wasn't just saying something about Jesus. He was saying something about God. He was saying God is actively working. I recognize now that God is actively working in the here and now. And he is not what I expected. The scriptures are actually being fulfilled right in front of me in my life. 
Jesus could have told them this, could have told them that this is the Messiah, this is what's going on, but that wasn't the mission. No, the mission was to show them God, to show them God by what he did, to show them God by what he said, and to see who around here might recognize it. And finally, that moment came when one soul imperfectly just realized this one thing, God has come. Against Jewish disillusionment, against Roman skepticism, there was a spark. And that spark was necessary, so Jesus started to flame that spark because the kingdom of God on earth began with what Simon Peter understood. God comes, and he came. And that, my friends, is the meaning of Christmas. That God would come, that God did come. God entered our history. And with that one sentence, Simon Peter put it all together. This is what he was saying. Jesus, when I look at you, I now see what God is like. I see what God is like when I see you. That God is real in our lives. That he has come to us. And this is what eventually theologians uh, decided to call the incarnation. That God has come to us in Christ. You see, you have the wrong idea about God. You start thinking about him, and you tend to start thinking about him more and more about this old guy in the sky with a beard. Like little Peter, like with his grandmother. You know, God is this old guy in the beard. No, 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 no. That is not who God is. God is the one who enters history, who enters our history. And the reason I was so influential, the reason the church was born there, the reason why Jesus just fanned that flame, because that was that one spark, that spark grew over the next hundred years to convert half of the Roman Empire so that Christianity became the official religion. Why? Because people started to understand if God had come in history, he would come in my history. That's what Simon Peter understood with, when he said that sentence. That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to us. And that means he's active. He would act in my life. You know, as, as D.M. Bailey put it, you know, there's a lot in the Bible about people seeking God. There's a whole lot more about God seeking people. And that, friends, is what happened when I finally, barely caught up with Enoch in the dinosaur world or outside of whatever world it was. It was, uh, it was I had gone across a footbridge and, and just through these two people's sleeves, I remember, I just I, in this little triangle, I caught sight of him. And I was able to say, there he is. And I pushed through, and I lunged for him, and I put my hand on his shoulder. And he turned around, he looked at me. And he realized, oh, there's Dad. And do you realize what had just happened there? All this time, he thought he was looking for me. And, you know, not doing a very good job of it. But, but what was really actually happening is that his father was looking for him. All the time that he was going off, going around, trying to look for his father, his father actually was looking for him. And when I put his hand, my hand on his shoulder, he recognized that. That's what Peter finally saw in Jesus Christ. 
that it's not him looking for God. It was God looking for him and coming with his hand on his shoulder. And friends, that is what Christmas is about. That is what you have got to celebrate this Christmas. That is what you have got to make your Christmas about. Because if you make your Christmas about these other things, if you make your Christmas about eggnog, or you make your Christmas about the, the presents uh, that you did or you didn't get, or, or if you make your Christmas about the winter solstice, then, then what Christmas will be for you? It will be a distraction. And it will evaporate. Come January 2nd, what Christmas was for you will evaporate faster than the vapor over your Starbucks coffee. It'll just go away. Because that, these things, nice as they are, they cannot free your soul. But this message, this can free your soul. If you make your Christmas about this message, that God has come so he will come in your life, you will, you will approach January 2nd when you go back to work with hope. God has already come. It means he will enter your history. So, non-believing friend, if you are here today, you don't know what this Christianity stuff is, you don't know what you believe, or maybe you're thinking about it, this is what Christmas is about for you. This is what it needs to be about for you. If you're a non-believer here, what you should know is that you think that maybe you've been looking around for God. Maybe you don't even call it God. Maybe you just called it looking for truth. You think that you've been looking around, searching around for that. What you have to realize is that's not really what's been going on at all. You think you've been looking around, but actually the Father has been looking for you. And the Father has been reaching out to put his hand on your shoulder. And if you would, if you would really celebrate Christmas well, you would realize that's what's been going on that he's been reaching out for you all the time, all along. It's been him that's been reaching out for you because, you know, that's what it means to become a Christian. That is simply what it means to become a Christian is to make that flip and realize, you know, I might have been thinking I was, I was looking for something, but what was really happening is that there was one behind me reaching out, putting his hand on my shoulder. That's what it means to become a Christian. Realize all along God has been reaching out for me. And Christian brothers and sisters, what does Christmas mean for you? It means this very same thing. That this trial that you're facing, this temptation that you're facing, you think you're tried by one thing. Actually, the real temptation in your trial, the greatest temptation in your trial, you want me to tell you what it is? You know what it is? It doesn't really matter what your trial is. The greatest temptation that you're facing in this trial that you're facing now is to believe that you're in it alone. That's the greatest temptation you're facing is to think that this trial that's weighing on you, it's just you and the trial or the temptation, and that's it. What you have to recognize and what Christmas means is that you are not in it alone. As a Christian believer, you are not ever alone. You think that you just have to face it yourself. 
And what you have to realize is that instead, there's one behind you reaching out, putting his hand on your shoulder. That God is putting his hand on your shoulder. You are not alone. The Holy Spirit has not left you in this temptation. And what you need to do this Christmas is turn around and recognize that that person has a hand on your shoulder. And it's been that way all along. All along, he's the one reaching out for you, for his hand on your shoulder. Amen? Can you believe that? Can you receive that? If you do, that will be Christmas. You will have celebrated Christmas well. And you will have gotten the meaning of Christmas. One last thing before we uh, turn to the table here. Let me put the star on the top of the tree. You know, when I caught up with Enoch and I put my hand on his shoulder, he turned around and he looked up at me in recognition and his expression said, wait, there's dad. What do you know? That's great. (laughs) He was happy. But he did not know how happy he should have been. And you know, that really gets at the, at the deeper meaning even of Christmas. He didn't know how dire his situation was. He was happy. He was glad. He recognized. He's like Simon Peter here. But he didn't know how happy he should have been. And that, friends, is the rest of the Gospel of Mark. With the very next verse, we didn't include it, but actually the very next verse, it starts in with, now that you know who Jesus is, the next eight chapters are about what Jesus has to do to put his hand on our shoulder, what God had to do to come into our lives. And that's the rest of the, of the Gospel of Mark, which we'll be looking at some of in the new year. Because Enoch was just like that. He didn't realize how dire his situation was, and he did not realize what I had to leave in order to come and get him. You know, even to to go after Enoch, I had to leave what was precious to me. I had to leave what was very valuable, these two other kids. You are valuable, darling, just want you to know. (laughs) He didn't know what what value I had to leave behind in order to come get him because he didn't know how dire his situation was. It's just like God. Only it's just a little bit like God. Because God left something infinitely more valuable in order to come to put his hand on our shoulder. Infinitely more valuable. You know what God left behind? He left behind the absolute eternal bliss of the triune fellowship of the members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost the joy that they share in love with one another within themselves, because God is triune, his community of love, he left that in order to come after us. You want to know a little bit of what he left behind? This, this, just, just think about the best time you had this Christmas, family. The most joyful time you've had of any Christmas in your life. The most relaxing time, the most blissful time when you were all together laughing together. That joyful time, just think about that. That moment was a little taste of what God enjoyed forever in eternity. 
and what he turned his back on to come after us. That is the most important thing to God. You want to know how I know it's the most important thing to God? Just look at what Jesus cried out on the cross when he lost it. He gave that up in order to come after you, that thing of almost infinite value in order to come after you. And that, friends, is the meaning of Christmas.